Now I want to come to a more rigorous refutation of this claim of the positive. No one can purposefully not act. Now consider, however, some economic proposition. What is consumed now cannot be consumed again later. Without private property in production factors, there can be no prices. And without prices, cost accounting is impossible. If we increase the amount of money without increasing the quantity of non-money goods, social wealth will not be higher, but only prices will rise. What is consumed now cannot be consumed again later. Jose Galison, you're watching No Way Jose. You can find me on No Way Jose YouTube channel, all the major auto podcasters and Odyssey and Rumble as well. Uh, definitely still pushing the Rumble. Uh, my little uh, strike should be completely expired here in a few days, and I'll start uploading some of the material back to over to YouTube. Uh, so uh, yeah, uh, just keep, otherwise, you know, go go to Rumble. I don't want to tell you if you want to get the early content. Uh, if you want to get the from here. God, I'm all fucking tongue-tied today. But from here on going forward, there will be some content occasionally that will only go on Rumble so as not to risk my YouTube. So I highly recommend going to the Rumble if you like the video content. Otherwise, pretty much everything goes to the audio podcast feeds uh, if you just prefer listening audio-wise. But today, my guest is Toad. We're continuing our coverage of... Not coverage, but uh, our live reading of Democracy of the God that failed... Uh, yeah, uh, I do want to remind you guys how this works, the logistics of this. Uh, usually I record, I do a stream for my patrons and it stays up after that and it doesn't go public usually for like a week or so. So if you want that early content, patreon.com slash no way Jose 2020 lowest levels, two bucks. Uh, the highest level is my sponsors. I read them off at the end of every episode. The two level, two bucks gets you the early content though, if that's all that you want. And that's, that's fine. Uh, but I do want to give a quick, quick, uh, quick, uh, 
God, I'm having a brain. God, I don't know what my brain's not working today. I want to give a quick shout out to the guy who makes those intros for the Hoppo ones, uh, Romero Synth. Go follow his channel. He's got a bunch of those. That's where I'm getting these from. Uh, and with that, if you are just now tuning into these live ring ones, I do these for every one. I know they're long. If you don't like it, fast forward. I think it probably works cool for people who, if they were late, later, try to knock these all out in, in, in a row. They kind of have a little bit of an interlude almost. But, I don't know, either way they're cool. If you don't like it, fast forward. Uh, so I don't want to hear any complaints about that. Let's go ahead and get Toad in here and get to it. What's up, my man? What's going on, man? Not much, dude. <laughs> Just ready to get into it today. Yeah. We're starting a new chapter. Getting into unconservatism and libertarianism, which yeah. is, uh, but in the following chapter, I believe, is on uh, classical liberalism and libertarianism. So, uh he, he, he kind of tears away a lot of things, and uh, we'll, we'll get into that today. Yeah. The errors of classical liberalism, mm. the next chapter. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, all right. You ready to get into it? Yeah. Conservatism and libertarianism, chapter 10. Yep. Let me begin by discussing two possible meanings of the term conservative. The first meaning is to refer to someone as conservative who generally supports the status quo. That is, a person who wants to conserve whatever laws, rules, regulations, moral, and behavioral codes happen to exist at any given time. Because different laws, rules, and political institutions are in place at different times and slash or different locations, what a conservative supports depend on, depends on and changes with place and time. To be conservative means nothing specific at all except to like the existing order, whatever that may be. The first meaning can be discarded then. The term conservative must have a different meaning. What it means, and possibly only can mean, is this. Conservative refers to someone who believes in the existence of a natural order, a natural state of affairs which corresponds to the nature of things, of nature and man. This natural order is and can be disturbed by accidents and anomalies, by earthquakes and hurricanes, diseases, pests, monsters and beasts, by two-headed horses and f or four-legged humans, cripples and idiots by war, conquest, and tyranny, but it's not difficult to distinguish the normal from the anomaly, the essential from the accidental. A little bit of abstraction removes all the clutter and enables nearly everyone to see what is and what is not natural in accordance with the nature of things. Moreover, the natural is at the same time the most enduring state of affairs. The natural order is ancient and forever the same. Only anomalies and accidents undergo change. Hence, it can be recognized by us everywhere and at all times. Uh, all right, I don't know if you have any thoughts on yeah. this point. We're not really, not, I don't uh, feel like there's a ton of commentary. Maybe you yeah, have some. Oh, well, I mean, the, the first like definition that he kind of threw out there, which he's saying he's not going to be going by, I guess, is kind of like the knock on people that refer to themselves as conservatives today, that it's like, oh, you're just, con you're conserving basically what was the progressive ideology from 10 years ago or something like that. It's like, what are you even conserving, right? Like, you're just maintaining all this woke shit that's already in place uh, yeah and he dismisses that within the course of like a paragraph or two because of that it's it's nonsense right. so yeah. yeah i mean i think like pointing that fact out i think is useful but uh yeah he's he's going on to say well i'm going to be referring to it as somebody that wants to conserve the natural order the natural state of things so you can't really change the facts of nature and i'm assuming he's also kind of uh referring to like the first thing that popped into my mind was the fact that there are uh natural elites and if you maintain like a natural order those natural elites would tend to rise like the people who are actually good at like a certain thing would tend to uh become like the expert in that particular thing mm -hmm. all right Conservative refers to someone who recognizes the old and natural through the noise of anomalies and accidents and who defends, supports, and helps to preserve it against the temporary and anomalous. Within the realm of the humanities, including the social sciences, a conservative recognizes families, fathers, mother, children, and grandchildren, and households based on private property and cooperation with the community of other households as the most fundamental, natural, essential, ancient, and indispensable social units. Moreover, the family household also represents the model of the social order at large. Just as a hierarchical order exists in a family, so there is a hierarchical order within a community of families, of apprentices, servants, and masters, vassals, knights, lords, overlords, and even kings, tied together by an elaborate and intricate system of kinship relations, and of children, parents, priests, bishops, cardinals, patriarchs, or popes, and finally the transcendent God, 
Of the two layers of authority, the earthly physical power of parents, lords, and kings is naturally subordinate and subject to control by the ultimate spiritual, intellectual authority of fathers, priests, bishops, and ultimately God. Uh, I don't know if you have anything thrown here. It is interesting. He's evoking uh, religion because Hoppe, I don't believe, I believe he was an atheist, but... He was one of those ones that wasn't a cunt about it. So, well, well he, he's still alive. I actually don't yeah. know. I, like, I, I thought he was a Christian, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Yeah, um, I don't know. But at, at any rate, like, he's kind of saying, uh, he's referring to kind of what I was just saying. With the, there is like a natural hierarchy of things. Like, there are people that tend to be like the leaders of households, the leaders of communities for actual like more valid reasons because they're good at uh, leading at that uh, type of thing. And I think he's kind of alluding to the fact that there are certain, dis- well, he's saying there are certain disruptions to the natural order. And I think he's alluding to the fact that probably the most major disruptor of the natural order is government. Yeah. All right. Conservatives, or more specifically, Western Greco Christian conservatives, if they stand for anything, stand for and want to preserve the family and the social hierarchies and layers of material as well as spiritual, intellectual authority based on and growing out of family bonds and kinship relations. Let me now come to an evaluation of contemporary conservatism and then go on to explain why conservatives today must be anti-status libertarians and equally important why libertarians must be conservatives. Modern conservatism in the United States and Europe is confused and distorted. This confusion is largely due to democracy. Under the influence of representative democracy and with the transformation of the U.S. and Europe into mass democracies from World War I, conservatism was transformed into an anti-egalitarianism, uh, no, anti-egalitarian, author- aristocratic, anti-status ideological force into a movement of culturally conservative status, the right wing of the socialists and social democrats. Most self-proclaimed contemporary conservatives are concerned, as they should be, about the decay of families, divorce, illegitimacy, loss of authority, multiculturalism, alternative lifestyles, social disintegration, sex, and crime. All of these phenomena represent anomalies and scandalous deviations from the natural order. A conservative must indeed be opposed to all these developments and try to restore normalcy. However, most contemporary conservatives at least most of the spokesmen of the conservative establishment, either do not recognize that their goal of restoring normalcy requires the most drastic, even revolutionary, anti-status social changes, or, if they know about this, they are members of the fifth column engaged in destroying conservatism, uh, conservatism from inside and hence must be regarded as evil. Right, so this is all pretty interesting, I would say. Yeah. Um, well, first, like kind of leading up into that paragraph before that he was also when he's referring to like family and religion and stuff, he's saying that uh, referring to a conservative as being somebody that wants to like maintain those institutions. Those institutions also happen to be like the major some of the major checks against the state. So just kind of de facto, if you are wanting to conserve those uh, like natural uh, like hierarchies and institutions, then you are in fact, actually anti-statist. And then he's actually now contrasting that with cultural conservatism in that even though that, yes, by like believing in those things, that does make you a cultural conservative in that way that you want to conserve those institutions, that is true. He's actually saying, and I think this flies in the face of like a lot of the uh, like left libertarians who oppose Hoppe, he's saying like exactly the opposite of what they think of him right here in this paragraph, uh, which is that he is saying... Um, that they do not want to devolve into statism them, themselves in order to maintain those institutions. Like he outright said that in that paragraph. Yeah, yeah. His argument would be that that like that, that one degrades the other, or the absence of one degrades the other, essentially. So right. if you're not, if you don't have a, you know, a up, if you're not trying to get back to natural hierarchies, and you know, and you're just living a degeneracy, you're going to naturally going to you know, you're going to have issues in the libertarian sense and vice versa. Uh, if, if, if you do try to enact the state to get for your cultural values, you're going to end up with the opposite, you know, uh, intended effect. So Right. So I think yeah. you need to have like the recognition that the state uh, like creates incentives or bad incentives that actually cause more of those things that you're trying to avoid and cause more of the disruption and the decay of those institutions that you're trying to conserve. So the answer is to actually reduce the size of the state. Yep. All right. It's on to you, bud. 
All right. That this is largely true for the so-called neoconservatives does not require further explanation here. Indeed, as far as their leaders are concerned, one suspects that most of them are of the latter, evil kind. They are not truly concerned about cultural matters, but recognize that they must play the cultural conservatism card so as not to lose power and promote their entirely different goal of global social democracy. However, it is also true of many conservatives who are generally concerned about family disintegration or dysfunction and cultural rot. I am thinking here in particular of the conservatism represented by Patrick Buchanan and, of his, and his movement. Buchanan's conservatism is by no means as different from that of the conservative Republican Party establishment as he and his followers fancy themselves. In one decisive respect, their brand of conservatism is in full agreement with that of the conservative establishment. Both are status. They differ over what exactly needs to be done to restore normalcy to the U.S., but they agree that it must be done by the state. There is not a trace of principled anti-statism in either. So he's, you know, he's taking a shot at Buchanan, even though, you know, like a lot of libertarians, including me, like a lot of the stuff that Buchanan said and did. And I think that is true. Like, I think he had a lot of, uh, like, the right goals in mind. He identified, like, a lot of the right problems. But I think maybe uh, his, like, ideas of what the solutions would be were not correct and i think that's kind of what hoppa is saying here like which of course would be using state force in a lot of those ways um and i i might actually like differ from hoppa to some extent maybe in that like like during like the covid shit you uh, and you you know even up to now like you might have seen me like saying well i'm okay with like certain state actors doing certain things that i think are actually like a check against like worse statism like I would have like I would be okay with like DeSantis in Florida like saying like I'm going to ban vaccine passports in the state or something to that effect. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, I mean, that's definitely a deeper conversation to be right. had there. I mean, especially if we're not the ones drafting the legislation, so it's like one of those things that are like, yeah, well, it's here. I'm not that upset about it. It may not be exactly what I want, but you know, whatever. Um, right. All right, let me illustrate by quoting Sam Francis, one of the leading theoreticians and strategists of the Buchananite movement. After deploring, deploying, uh, deploring anti-white and anti-Western propaganda, militant secularism, acquisitive egoism, economic and political globalism, democratic inundation, and unchecked state centralism. Oh, I, I miss a Demographic inundation and unchecked yeah. state centralism. He expounds on a new spirit of America first, which implies not only putting national interests over those of other nations and abstractions like world leadership, global harmony, and the new world order, but also giving priority to the nation over the gratification of individual and subnational interests. So far, so good. But how does he propose to fix the problem of moral degeneration and cultural rot? Those parts of the federal Leviathan responsible for the proliferation of moral and cultural pollution, such as the Department of Education, the National Endowment of the Arts, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and the federal judiciary should be closed or cut down to size. But there is no opposition against the state's involvement in educational matters. There is no recognition that the natural order in education means that the state has nothing to do with it. Education is entirely a family matter. Right. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if in that whole thing he's, like, still referring to, like, Francis's ideas or if he's just kind of expounding on that and talking about his own ideas. Although, uh, you know, he's talking about uh, Francis uh, promoting, like, more national interests over global, which I think is uh, probably the, the more correct approach. Like, you you want to be as decentralized as possible, but I think you want to decentralize even further than that down to the individual although i think there's no problem with um prioritizing like the stuff that concerns you like in the immediate over like something that's further away from you absolutely yeah no i mean that definitely i, I mean really he's just kind of getting into schooling in this part and uh, right. he was using schooling as an example and the idea that he wanted to get rid of a lot of these different uh you know cultural things but he's still willing to keep school Right, uh, but yeah, uh, right. Even though the yeah, like the public education system is kind of the root of like most problems. Like it yeah. is the thing that, uh, like 
usurps like the role of the parents and it takes that role it itself starts parenting the, the children at like as young an age as possible it's, it's taking them in and propagandizing them right away you know as we know it's like the uh, the prussian model turning them into soldiers for the state if you will so i mean that is one of the one of the worst things uh one of the worst parts of the the state apparatus that definitely needs to be dismantled completely all right. Moreover, there is no recognition that moral degeneracy and cultural rot have deeper causes and cannot simply be cured by state-imposed curriculum changes or exhortations and declamations. To the contrary, Francis proposes that the cultural turnaround, the restoration of normalcy, can be achieved without a fundamental change in the structure of the modern welfare state. Indeed, Buchanan and his ideologues explicitly defend the three core institutions of the welfare state— Social Security, Medicare, and unemployment subsidies. They even want to expand the social responsibilities of the state by assigning it to the task of protecting. By means of national import and export restrictions, American jobs, especially in industries of national concern, and insulate the wages of U.S. workers from foreign laborers must, meet, or must work for $1 an hour or less. In fact, Buchananites freely admit that they are statists. They detest and ridicule capitalism, laissez-faire, free markets and trade, wealth, elites, and a nobility. And they advocate a new populist, indeed proletarian, conservatism which amal amalgamates social and cultural conservatism and social or uh, socialist economics. Thus, continues Francis, while the left could win middle Americans through its economic measures, it lost them through its social and cultural radicalism. And while the right could attract middle Americans through appeals to law and order and defense of sexual norm normality, conventional morals and religion, traditional social institutions and invocations of nationalism and patriotism, it lost middle Americans when it rehearsed its old bourgeois economic formulas. Uh, I don't know if you have anything at this point. If yeah. You can, you can um, chime in. Well, I mean, he's he's still talking about uh, Buchanan mm. and Francis and saying that they are status, especially when it comes to economic matters. Like, even though I think uh, like Buchanan became like pretty good on like foreign policy, uh, war and stuff like that after uh, like the Soviet Union was gone and that was no longer a thing because I think he was a Cold Warrior before that. But after that, he became pretty good. Um, I, and but he's saying that like these guys were um promoting certain aspects of the welfare state they're promoting um like foreign uh protectionism or uh trade protectionism essentially uh in an effort to uh like prop up u.s businesses over like foreign businesses which as we know uh, that's you know not a free market policy and that uh kind of disrupts the idea of uh having um uh, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I can't even remember now. I I'm brain farting right now. I'm on, <laughs> I'm on two hours of sleep. We're both brain farting here. But, uh, you know, when you have certain countries that are better at producing certain goods than other countries, um, I don't know why I'm, why I'm not thinking of that, know, that term right term now. Of, I don't know. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? I think I do, but I can't, I can't think of it right now. Uh, competitive advantage or comparative advantage, uh, something, oh, something like go. that. Okay. Yeah. yeah so nice. he's saying that that kind of, you know, it gets rid of that. So like, like you might not be getting like cheaper goods anymore from like some foreign country, which is if you're getting them, uh, that would benefit your uh, like consumers at home more so than like if you were having to produce something just because you're producing something in the U.S. doesn't mean that that's like the best option. Like maybe some other country can produce that thing cheaper and that means that your people at home are going to be getting that thing cheaper and that's beneficial to them. So, you know, you're, you're only like propping up like some of those local uh, businesses, uh, but hurting like foreign businesses and hurting your uh, local, your uh, like domestic consumers as well. So, you know, they were, these guys were for like some of this protectionist stuff. And he's saying that's all bad, of course, uh, that, you know, those are all status policies. Um, I mean, I think that's kind of the whole gist yeah. of that. And he's saying that they kind of, uh, that that might even kind of like lose, uh, like lose them some some of their uh, followers who are like middle class Americans because they might see hey like you're kind of propping up like the like corporate interests rather than actually working you know actually promoting policies that are good for like the working man essentially I don't know but and and I might actually like lump in like Tucker Carlson along with like some of these guys like he has some like bad economic ideas that are kind of in that same vein even though I like Tucker, like that, that's one of, uh, one of the worst yeah, things about him. 
Yeah. All right. Hence, it is necessary to combine the economic policies of the left and the nationalism uh, and cultural conservatism of the right to create a new identity synthesizing both the economic interests and cultural national loyalties of the proletarian middle class in a separate and unified political movement. For obvious reasons, this doct doctrine is not so named, but there is a term for this type of conservatism. It is called social nationalism or national socialism. Oh, I no. <laughs> <laughs> I will not concern myself here with the question whether or not Buchanan's conservatism has mass appeal and whether or not its diagnosis of American politics is sociologically correct. I doubt this is the case, and certainly Buchanan's fate during the 1995 and 2000 Republican presidential primaries does not indicate otherwise. Rather, I want to address the more fundamental questions. Assuming that it does have such appeal, that is, assuming that cultural conservatism and social socialist uh, ec economics can be psychologically combined, that is, that people can hold both of these views simultaneously without cognitive dissonance, can they also be effectively and practically, economically and praxeologically combined? Is it possible to maintain the current le level of economic socialism, social security, etc., and reach the goal of restoring cultural normalcy, natural families, and normal rules of conduct. All right, so it sounds like we're, he's going to get into th the theoretics of if you're somehow able to uh, essentially uphold the economic system of a state while somehow restoring, you know, right. the, what, you know, <laughs> kind of, uh, which is weird. This seems to be a trope whenever national socialism is a thing. It is like yeah. nationalism is becomes about culture, about like, uh, getting back to what they consider to be natural hierarchies, but they corrupt it in the process. So, yeah. hey man, isn't it kind of crazy? A Hoppe is uh, calling Buchanan a Nazi in this book. <laughs> no, I mean, so, technically, I, I do like how he kind of explicitly points out the fact that hey, these guys are actually promoting leftist economics here, and now he's going on to say like, is it in fact cognitive dissonance to favor leftist economic policies? while also uh, claiming to favor or maybe even thinking that you do favor uh, like right uh, cultural ideals and cultural conservatism. And I'm assuming he's going to say that, you, that it is cognitive dissonance and that you cannot actually hold those two views simultaneously while also being consistent and that those leftist economic views are not going to help you achieve your cultural conservative goals. Yep. Spoiler, right. but I think that's what he's going to say. <laughs> All right, well, on to you. All right. Uh, Buchanan and his theoreticians do not feel the need to raise this question because they believe politics to be solely a matter of will and power. They do not believe in such things as economic laws. If, if only people want something and they're given the power to implement their will, everything can be achieved. The dead Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises, and he puts that in quotes, I guess that's, is that what we refer to Mises as, the dead Austrian? I don't know. He's alive and well. I would assume uh, he was maybe was implying that's something that Buchanan said, like. Yeah, yeah that must be something Buchanan said. I feel said, like yeah. I vaguely remember somebody bringing that up before. The, yeah. that's, that, that was like a quote that he kind of dismissed Mises uh, offhand. Oh, he, he says it right like here, that. actually. I should have just okay. read the next uh, right. few words. The dead Austrian economist Ludwig von Mises, to whom Buchanan referred contemptuously, during his campaign, yeah, so that's why, characterized this belief as historicism, the intellectual posture of the German <laughs> cadeter socialisten, the academic socialists of the chair who justified any and all statist measures. Uh, yeah, cadeter socialisten. But historicist contempt and ignorance of economics does not alter the fact that inexorable economic laws exist. You cannot have your cake and eat it too, for instance. Or what you consume now cannot be consumed again in the future. Or producing more of one good requires producing less of another. No wishful thinking can make such laws go away. To believe otherwise can only result in practical failure. In fact, noted Mises, economic history is a long record of government policies that failed because they were designed with a bold disregard for the laws of economics. In light of elementary and immutable economic laws, the Buchananite program of social nationalism is just another bold but impossible dream. 
No wishful thinking can alter the fact that maintaining the core institutions of the present welfare state and wanting to return to traditional families, norms, conduct, and culture are incompatible goals. You can have one, socialism, welfare, or the other, traditional morals, but you cannot have both. For social nationalist economics, or sorry, socialist, social nationalist economics, the pillar of the current welfare state system Buchanan wants to leave untouched is the very cause of cultural and social anomalies. Yeah, so he's saying, you know, he's reiterating like some of Mises' like main points, uh, like the points from human action, basically, that um, these economic laws are just, they're fact like these laws just exist they're kind of laws of nature they're the ways that humans behave essentially and you can't just get rid of them uh like they yeah. still exist even if uh you have government force coming in like you might think that your government force is going to like fix these things and you might uh it's kind of like wishful thinking like you might think that that might even like eliminate these laws but that's obviously not going to happen and all it's going to do is like skew incentives and things like that like you can't you can't use government force to actually fix uh, the problems here. You're always going to have the, those uh, laws in effect, the laws of economics. Absolutely. Yep. I don't really have anything to add to that. This one, he's just kind of laying it out pretty simply on his own. Not really much commentary for us to be had. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you can't have you can you can have one or the other. <laughs> right. All right. In order to clarify this, it is only necessary to recall one of the most fundamental laws of economics, which says that all compulsory wealth or income redistribution, regardless of the criteria on which it is based, involves taking from some, the havers of something, and giving it to others, the non-havers of something. Accordingly, the incentive to be a haver is reduced, and the incentive to be a non-haver increased. What the haver has is characteristically something considered good, and what the non-haver does not have is something bad or a deficiency. Indeed, this is the very idea underlying any redistribution. Some have too much good stuff and others not enough. The result of every redistribution is that one will thereby produce less good and increasingly more bad, less perfection and more deficiencies. By subsidizing with tax funds, with funds taken from others, people who are poor, bad, more poverty will be created. Uh, did I read that wrong? I think I got it right. Uh, by subsidizing people because they are unemployed, bad, more unemployment will be created. By subsidizing unwed mothers, bad, there will be more unwed mothers and more illegitimate births, etc. So yeah, there he's kind of... He's just, yeah. he's just driving home the point from before, laying yeah. out the incentives, just the very fact that by you're doing this, you are creating an incentive problem. But Right. Yeah, he's just reiterating stuff that yeah he said in other chapters in the book, of course, kind of just the basic idea that, yeah, if you are taking from some people by force and giving those things to some other people, you're going to disincentivize like production, basically. You're going to disincentivize people from actually wanting to produce those good things because they think it's, they know it's more likely that it's going to be taken away from them. And you're going to incentivize not wanting to produce those things because you know that in some cases you're going to just have those things be given to you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if I was got paid a hundred bucks an hour, but there was 50% tax rate now, instead of working for that a hundred, hundred dollars in reality, I'm only, only have a hundred dollar incentive or only have a really a $50 incentive because I already know half of it's right. being stolen. So just that simple idea. And then now you add to that, that that money is going to somebody else who um, it may not even be their own fault, but are in a, in a bad situation Essentially, you're incentivizing them to be to make that comfort that situation more comfortable, essentially, and more more manageable for them to live that way. So, yeah. yeah. But all right. Uh, let's keep moving, I guess. All right. Yeah. Obviously, this basic insight applies to the entire system of so-called Social Security that has been implemented in Western Europe from the 1880s onward and the U.S. since the 1930s of compulsory government insurance against old age, illness, occupational injury, unemployment, indigence, etc. In conjunction with the even older compulsory system of public education, these institutions and practices amount to a massive attack on the institution of the family and personal responsibility. 
by relieving individuals of the obligation to provide for their own income, health, safety, old age, and children's education, the range and temporal horizon of private provision is reduced and the value of marriage, family, children, and kinship relations is lowered. Irresponsibility, short-sightedness, negligence, illness, and even destructionism bads are promoted and responsibility, farsightedness, diligence, health, and conservatism goods are punished. The compulsory old age insurance system in particular by which retirees, the old, are subsidized from taxes imposed on current income earners, the young, has systematically weakened the natural intergenerational bond between parents, grandparents, and children. The old need no longer rely on the assistance of their children if they have made no provision for their own old age and the young with typically less accumulated wealth must support the old with typically more accumulated wealth rather than the other way around as is typical within families. Consequently, not only do people want to have fewer children and indeed birth rates have fallen in, fallen in half since the onset of modern social security welfare policies, but also the respect which the young traditionally accorded to their elders is diminished and all indicators of family disintegration and malfunctioning such as rates of divorce, illegitimacy, child abuse, parent abuse, spouse abuse, single parenting, singledom, alternate, alternative lifestyles, and abortion have increased. That's, uh, that's some intense stuff there, even though I think he's kind of like, he's reiterating uh, some of the stuff that he said before, but he's tying it all in together now and saying that if you have these um, economic policies uh, from the government, these welfare policies, like it just amounts to these welfare policies, again, socialism, where you're, whatever you're doing, you're, you're doing something in which you're taking from somebody and redistributing re it to somebody else. And that's going to have this effect of like disrupting uh, some of the, like the units that you want to conserve, like some of the, um, like the core uh, institutions that are the checks on the state, as we've said a bunch of times, uh, particularly disrupting the family in this case. And as I was pointing out, I think maybe last, uh, last episode that we did, um, I think I pointed out this specifically, the social security aspect of this, where you have, um, you're taking like uh, from uh, like the income of the young who at this point are like, they're like finding a job, it's harder for them to find jobs and things like that. They're making less money. Uh, you're taking uh, from them basically and, and uh, giving that to the old people because this is, you know, this uh, social security is a Ponzi scheme. And there's no money uh, left. It's completely insolvent. So there is no money left. So they're having to take from the people that are putting into it now to give to those people that they owe, which are the old people. But typically these old people are the ones that actually have more money at this point because they were in like a better and uh, they were in a system that was kind of in better economic shape when they were the same age at that point. So they're, they tend to be at this point in like better economic shape uh, to an extent. So it kind of disrupts everything. And then like the, the children can no longer really afford to take care of the parents. So that like natural progression there can't happen anymore. He's talking about uh, time preference. There's a lot going on here. He's talking about oh, how it disrupts time preference, which he's talked about, you know, a bunch in this book as well which is basically uh, saying that uh, it's gonna like disincentivize people from even having children anymore. And it's gonna make them less future oriented. So they're not gonna like save as much. They're not gonna be thinking about the future as much. And that's just gonna kind of like eliminate like family. Yeah, if you wanna general. be a good conservative, yeah. you gotta be a libertarian. Uh, moreover, with the socialization of the healthcare system through institutions such as Medicaid and Medicare and the regulation of the insurance industry, by restricting an insurer's right of refusal to exclude any individual risk as uninsurable and discriminate freely according to actuarial methods between different group risks. A monstrous machinery of wealth and income redistribution at the expense of responsible individuals in low-risk risk groups in favor of irresponsible actors and high-risk groups have been put in motion. Subsidies for the ill, unhealthy, and disabled breed illness, disease, and disability and weaken the desire to work for a living and to lead healthy uh, lifestyles or lives. Uh, one can do better, uh, do no better than, the, than, quote, the dead Austrian economist, economist <laughs> Ludwig von Mises once more. Yeah. Being ill is not a phenomenon independent of conscious will. A man's efficiency is not merely a result of his physical condition. It depends a lot. 
largely on his mind and will. The destructionist aspect of accident and health insurance lies above all in the fact that such institutions promote accident and illness, hinder recovery, and very often create or at any rate intensify and lengthen the functional disorders which fall illness or accident. To feel healthy is quite different from being healthy in the medical sense. By weakening or completely destroying the will to be well and be able to work, Social insurance creates illness and inability to work. It produces a habit of complaining, which is in itself a neurosis, and neurosis is of other kinds. As a social institution, it makes a people sick bodily and mentally, or at least helps to multiply, lengthen, and intensify disease. Social insurance has thus made the neurosis of the insured a dangerous public disease. Should the institution be extended and developed, the disease will spread. No reform can be of any assistance. We cannot weaken or destroy the will to health without producing illness. Yeah, uh, yeah there's a lot there. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's kind of a long way of saying, like, the main point there is kind of where he's talking about, uh, like, like what, like, um, like subsidizing man- disability yeah. does. Right, Sub- subsidizing disability and kind of like mandating health insurance as well, like the the healthcare yep. system. Like what you're doing, like the first thing that he pointed out um, is what you're doing is uh, you're incentivizing people to be in poor health because you're forcing other people to subsidize other people's bad health. So that's one thing. Like you're forcing everybody to pay into this. So you're not incentivizing people to take care of their own health so that, you know, that makes that flips everything on its head. That makes things backwards. And this was, he wrote this even before, um, like Obamacare came in, you know, with Obamacare, like came in with like the individual mandate, even though I think that's been like knocked down now, but that was kind of like, that really, that part of it was, is kind of what I'm talking about there, where you're like, you're really essentially mandating that people have to pay for other people's health. So in that way, people are just going to be incentivized to take even less care of themselves because, well, somebody else is going to pay for, you know, the fact that I have diabetes or whatever, something like that. And he's just referring to, you know, Medicaid and Medicare here, which it's kind of the same deal. And then, like you said, he's going on to talk about, uh, like, the disability insurance aspect of it as well, where you're, you're like, subsidizing people's disabilities, which is kind of going to disincentivize them from working, incentivize them to, you know, take more time off from work maybe because they're going to get paid hey i'm going to get paid to not do anything I, I can claim a disability even though i don't have one like uh like that simpsons episode where homer gains a ton of weight to claim a disability so that he uh gets out of work just because he doesn't want to do uh, the exercise program at work one of the best episodes of that show love it yeah all right i do not wish to explain here the economic nonsense of buchanan's and his theoreticians even further reaching idea of protectionist policies. If they were right, their argument in favor of economic protection would mount to an indictment of all trade in defense of the thesis that everyone would be better off if he never traded with anyone else. Certainly, in this case, no one would could ever lose his job and unemployment due to unfair competition would be reduced to zero. Yet such a full employment society would not be prosperous and strong. It would be composed of people who, despite working from dawn to dusk, would be condemned to poverty and starvation. Buchanan's international protectionism, while less destructive than a policy of interpersonal or interregional protectionism, would result in precisely the same effect. This is not conservatism. Conservatives want families to be prosperous and strong. This is economic destructionism. Yeah, so kind of like reductio uh, ad absurdum there. He's kind of saying, like, if you take uh, this economic protectionism to its extreme basically you're like you're like coming down like it ends up in just the individual has to produce everything that they want basically so you end up with no trade whatsoever which is very absurd and would yep. destroy everything absolutely uh and he's he, he we've covered this already in this book where he, he's gone to that and i think that's kind of why he just like quickly did it one paragraph here because he's like yeah. i don't want to make this case all over again Uh, In any case, what should be clear by now is that most, if not all, of the moral degeneration and cultural rot, the signs of decivilization all around us are the inescapable and unavoidable results of the welfare state and its core institutions. Classical, old-style conservatives knew this, and they vigorously opposed public education and social security. They knew that states everywhere were intent upon breaking down and ultimately destroying families and the institutions and layers of and hierarchies of authority that are the natural outgrowth of family-based communities in order to increase and strengthen their own power. They knew that in order to do so, states would have to take advantage of the natural rebellion of the adolescent 
against parental authority, and they knew the soci- that socialized education and socialized responsibility were the means of bringing about this goal. Social education and social security provided opening for the rebellious youth to escape parental authority. Old conservatives knew that these policies would, emma- would emancipate the individual from the discipline imposed by family and community life only to subject it est- instead to the direct immediate control of the state. Furthermore, they knew, or at least had a hunch, this would lead to a systematic infantilization of society, aggression emotionally and mentally from adulthood to adolescent or adolescence or childhood. Yeah, that's that's some pretty crazy stuff there. He, I mean, he's in. Yeah, he's first reiterating like some of the stuff that we've said repeatedly here, where he, that the state knows that they want to, um, if they want to maintain their power, they need to disrupt like the biggest checks against their power, which are the family unit. Um, So that's what they intend to do there. And the family unit, of course, is like, that's like the first like line of, um, I don't don't know if I want to say defense, but it's like the, he mentioned it like in one of the previous paragraphs, a couple of paragraphs ago, it's like the first line of um, like help essentially that you can reach out to, like you can reach out to like your family or community if you need like financial help or something like that. The state doesn't want that to happen. They want to justify their existence. So they need to take that role over. So they want to, you know, usurp that role from uh, from the family in that regard. And then, yeah, he's talking about them taking over the public education system again, sort of becoming the the parents uh, and in doing so that they actually like infantilize the population and kind of like keep them in this like perpetual state of uh, childhood, I guess, because they're not going to be like raising those children um, under like the appropriate rules that like an actual family would. Yeah, I mean, if you if you run the counter narrative in your head of how this would play out, likely had we never had a school, what typical schooling would look like, or or something close to, or Mm -hmm. education, it would likely consist of parents bringing their kids more places with them than being more around adults, seeing the real world, and kind of learning practical lessons that go along, having to be able to interact with older people. Then they'd probably still have their friends around the neighborhoods or whatever, but they'd be interacting with children. And under, you know, the, under the watchful eye of a family and friends and community, as opposed to this other entity school that isn't going to take on whatever your parenting style is. So it's going to allow them to foster rebellion. And it's, you know, like I said, like in school, they're around children. And let's be honest, I don't mean this to offend any teachers out there. Uh, Although I guess if I say this and and it hurts your feelings, you probably should think about it a little bit. Generally speaking, teachers aren't very impressive people. They just right. aren't there. I mean, yeah. Like, I mean, I've don't be wrong. I've had teachers in my life that were impressive people. Yeah, that's why like, they don't yeah. exist. But yeah, like, yeah, like everybody by and large. Everybody that's gone through like the public education system, like remembers like those few like actual good teachers because those were the only like because it's the rarity. Exactly. You know, it's it's the exception rather than the rule. And yeah, I mean, that was a good point that you brought up where that like infantilization that happens uh, to a large degree because uh, I didn't even think of this of it this way. So this is good because the children are, you know, they're thrown in with like all these other children that are like around their same age. And they're not really with like, aside from the teachers, they're not really like with adults. They're not seeing like the real world anymore. So it's like, yeah, they're like, their growth is being like stalled. Basically it's being retarded in that way. Yeah. I know. I mean, they're not seeing what real life is like. I mean, hundreds of years ago, like eight-year-old kids were working on the job site with their dad and learning skills. <laughs> and from there, they would learn how to, you know, by the time they were a teenager, right. would know how to frame a house because they learned it from their dad because they did it. They were next to him working the whole time, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. And in mean, different jobs would take on different ones. Sure, there would still be formal schoolings for some things, I'm sure. <laughs> so, but uh, I don't know. Anyways, uh, you can take on this last yeah. paragraph and we'll call it a day. All right. We're going to end so- at part three. Yep, yep, I see. All right. In contrast, Buchanan's populist proletarian conservatism, social nationalism, shows complete ignorance of all of this. Combining cultural conservatism and welfare statism is impossible, and hence economic nonsense. Welfare statism, social security in any way, shape, or form breeds moral and cultural rot and degeneration. Thus, if one is indeed concerned about America's moral decay and wants to restore normalcy to society and culture, one must oppose all aspects of the modern social welfare state. 
A return to normalcy requires no less than the complete elimination of the present Social Security system of unemployment insurance, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, public education, etc., and thus the near complete dissolution and deconstruction of the current state apparatus and government power. If one is ever to restore normalcy, government funds and power must dwindle to or even fall below their 19th century levels. Hence, true conservatives must be hardline libertarians, anti-status. Buchanan's conservatism is false. It wants a return to traditional morality, but at the same time advocates keeping the very institutions in place that are responsible for the perversion and destruction of traditional morals. Well, all right. Any final thoughts on that little bit, Toad? Uh, I mean, he's kind of just summing that up again and yep. saying that if, if you do want to be a true conservative and actually conserve these institutions that you want to conserve, the family uh, mostly, uh, that you must oppose the existence of the state. Absolutely. All right, Toad, you want to drop your plugs and we'll get out of here? Sure. Tower Gang Toad on Twitter. Uh, you and I both are hosts of the Tower Gang Pod, the most offensive podcast on the planet. That's me, you, Cole, a.k.a. Fat Dave, Clint from Liberty Lockdown, Top Lobster, and never anymore Reed Coverdale. And we are on Wednesday nights, 9-11 p.m., the most offensive comedy that you can find. We're on YouTube, Rumble, Odyssey, Spotify. Uh, you can subscribe to the locals and throw us some support, towergang.locals.com. And I have a sports betting show uh, called Better Off Dead, which I also have been doing football episodes on Wednesday nights as well. Awesome. Uh, big thanks to my sponsors. That'd be you, Toad. Uh, yeah. Then also I have at Abrogate D's. Go give him a follow on X.com. I have Kevin B. Clark, a full-time guitarist and private music teacher in the New York area. So if you need uh, someone for a gig for music-wise or you need a teacher, he's your guy. Uh, and if you're in the New York area. Then I have at Z-O-V-E-R-A-C-K. And then at underscore infinite zeal. Go give those guys a follow. Those are all mutuals of mine. Supporters of the show. Support those that support me. Because <laughs> they support you. Uh, and yeah. Uh, give me a follow at Tower Gang Jose on Twitter. You know, support me. Patreon.com. It's no way Jose 2020. That we are out. We'll have another one of these for you soon. Like, share, subscribe. Yeah. All that stuff. We are out. Peace.